Hello, I'm Carl Helliker, and welcome to Book Chat. Today with us, we have from Westchester University, Dr. Helen Berger, who's going to talk to us about a, literally a whole different world, but right in our own lo local area. Her book, Voices from the Pagan Census, a national survey of witches and neo-pagans in the United States. It uh, sounds sort of ominous, but it really isn't. It's, it's fascinating and an interesting topic. So Helen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Uh, what is the neo-pagan movement? The neo-pagan movement is a religious movement. It's rather a different or odd religion by some standards because they don't have a church and they don't have a sec central bureaucracy that can determine who is and who is not a pagan, but it nonetheless is a religion. It's a religion that in many ways is a very contemporary religion. The largest form or sect of neo-paganism are witches. And as soon as anybody hears witches, they think of the wicked witch of the West and of um, Satan and Satanists. And they're definitely not Satanists. This is a very, very gentle religion, in fact. It's a religion that does practice magic, but magic is seen as part of a larger spirituality. And whatever you send out, they tell you, comes back threefold. So you do somebody harm, which they believe you can with magic, it'll come back to haunt you in three times the strength. It's a religion that largely focuses on nature and on the seasons and what those changes in the seasons mean for the person and seeing the divine in nature itself. So in a sense, this is a religion that can be very compatible with Christianity or Judaism too. It can be in some ways, but of course there's a celebration of a number of gods right. and goddesses, and I put the emphasis on goddesses. Okay. And of course, that would not be consistent with Judaism or Christianity. Although the way in which the gods are interpreted is very open. Different people do it differently. Uh, for some people, it's very literally they believe in a, a divine goddess and god, or goddesses and gods. Um, for others, it's metaphorical metaphorical of nature or forces in nature or higher beings or something else. But there is polytheism, and that certainly has not been accepted within the Old Testament. Right. How long have you been studying this movement, and how did you become interested in it? I've been studying it since 1986, and we're in 2003, so that's a long time. I got interested in it because I was in, I did my doctoral dissertation on the English witchcraft trials of the early modern period. Mm -hmm. And so I had been interested in historic witch trials and the I was teaching at Boston University in those days and the Boston Public Library was doing a series on witchcraft in New England. And they invited me to give a series of talks in October. I would say it was a witchcraft, I was Halloween special. <laughs> and um, I was getting together talks for a public talk, and I thought of, and it was New England, not England, and I was trying to think of topics. And I was with a friend in New York and thinking about it and talking about it. And I said, oh, it would be fun for the last talk to talk about contemporary witches. There had been an article in the Boston Globe about Laurie Cabot, who was the official witch of Massachusetts, protesting the witches of Eastwick. And I said, well, I'll just do a quick and dirty and get together a public talk. And I'm still here doing research. So it, I always say the subject came to get me more than I came to get it. It's fascinating. Um, I, just before we go to the other question, I was curious that there are, uh, uh, I, I take it there are a, a fair number of, of practicing witches in, in 
groups in this area, is that correct? Oh, yes, indeed. Although this is not the largest area for witches, it's about medium. It's mm -hmm. I, in there are five, we have nine different, um, in the book, nine different regions. And Pennsylvania is part of the Mid-Atlantic, which is fifth. So it's dead in the middle. So mm -hmm. it's sort of an average place for witches and pagans. But there are quite a number. And there's a lot of pagans throughout the country. And there are quite a number around here. And in fact, you could live next door to one and not necessarily know this. They look like everybody else. Mm -hmm. They're soccer moms and... Um, and dads and people who go out to work and students. And, and unless you speak to them or they're having a ritual at their house and you hear something or see something, you wouldn't really know. So you might well know some, some witches and pagans. In fact, um, most recently in my first book, there's a picture of, of a woman who is a high priestess. And, and I hadn't seen her in years. I'd lost contact with her. And then I bumped into her again at the supermarket as we were both looking for things to buy for dinner. <laughs> yeah, and so we do have a copy of Helen's first book here, A Community of Witches, which talks more specifically about the uh, actual people who participate as right. opposed to the uh, demographic breakdown we get in the, in the Voices from the Pagan Census. That's right. Um, Voices of the Pagan Census. What, what exactly is the Pagan Census and why was it undertaken? Well, the pagan census actually is a survey of pagans and witches. It is not a census. Um, we had hoped to do a census, and it was entitled the pagan census. That was the name of the survey, hence why I used that name. People who had actually answered it had answered it as a pagan census. I did this with Andrus Corbin Othen, who is himself a witch and is the head of a large pagan organization in New England. He had hoped to really do a census of the entire pagan population in the United States. That was too ambitious. We couldn't do that. But we did do one of the largest surveys of pagans that has been undertaken, and the only one that I know of that used a number of different places to get responses. It was, most of them to date have been done at festivals, large gatherings of mm -hmm. pagans. Uh, some have been done by pagan organizations online, but few have been done in many different places. And ours was handed out at festivals, but it was also primarily handed out through mailings of a number of different large pagan organizations. We had 12 different pagan organizations send it to their membership, either in their journals, their newsletter, as a mailing. We also had it on the internet, and people passed it from person to person. And we had a very large return. We had almost 3,000 responses. And uh, do you think that's representative of a certain percentage uh, nationally? Uh, yes, I think the, there's not a clear number because there isn't a denominational headquarters that keeps numbers. But the best guess is there's probably a quarter of a million pagans nationwide. Some people say more, some say less. I think ha a quarter of a million is a reasonable guess. It's a significant number for people who are generally uh, not all that well known throughout our country. Uh, Helen, uh, you had mentioned earlier about uh, paganism having different deities and different holidays uh, than Christianity or Judaism. Can you uh, describe some of those deities and some of the festivals? 
Deities are more difficult than the festivals because, as I said before, people have different ways of conceiving of the deities and different people call different deities. Some people just refer to the god or the goddess and don't give it a name. Others use a Roman or a Greek pantheon. Some combine deities, Celtic, Greek, and that's actually the most common um, from the subcontinent of India, from American Indians, and they put together whole different grouping of them. So that, that's a little bit more difficult to name the main ones. But the holidays, they have what they refer to as eight Sabbaths at the beginning and the height of each holiday. And some of them are related particularly to Christianity. And that's in part because Christianity took some of those holidays and or older po pagan holidays and wove them in to a more Christian theme. Uh, for example, the next um, holiday that will be celebrated is Yule. And we think about Yule, you could think mm -hmm. about Yuletide. And in fact, there's a great, there's some similarity in that it takes place at December 21st. And it's a celebration of the return of the sun. Well, it's the sun is, of course, it's the shortest day of the year. We all know that. And you're celebrating that this has now come to the darkest period and we're about to turn things around and the sun will return. And the celebration is, of course, different, but it's a celebration of winter, of what it means to be in winter. And part of their mythology is a mythology in which there is a birth then of the sun, the sun that will grow to manhood for the spring. And so each holiday incorporates something of that season. And each of these reflects on people's own lives. So that at Yule, it's a reflection of people going inward. Inward as one does in a time of winter, into thinking about their lives and possibly what they're hoping for in the spring and hibernating, a time of hibernating, an internal change. And then you'll come through and you come to spring. Well, actually, there's, a, there's one in, in February, which is the height of winter, and celebrating that now the sun really is noticeably growing. And then you'd come to spring, and in spring there's a celebration of fertility, fertility in life and fertility in people's lives. Of course, these are modern men and women, and so it's fertility, and most of them are not trying to have children. Some are, but most are not. So it's fertility in what your life's work is, or mm -hmm. fertility in your relationships, or sometimes I attended one ritual that was a fertility for endangered species. Interesting. Um, you had mentioned earlier, and, and this point was interesting in your book, you said, without a bureaucracy and without dogma or without churches, what makes paganism a religion then? Well, that's a good question because it depends how you define religion. And one of the things we sociologists of religion are always talking about is how do you define a religion? And sort of intuitively, we have a sense that something is or is not a religion. But very often, we in the West use Christianity as sort of a model unknowingly. And in fact, sociologists have debated this because Buddhism doesn't have a god and they're less bureaucratically organized, but yet we recognize that this is indeed a religion. Mm -hmm. And so that um, 
Witchcraft is in many ways, or, or paganism or neo-paganism, very much still a religion. Why? Well, they're very concerned with the divine, with divinity, with coming and having, particularly they're strongly um, involved in having alternate experiences in which one is coming in place of the divine or being with the divine or being with the ultimate. All of these are things we'd recognize as religious. And of course, there are the gods and goddesses. Although, you know, as I said before, some take it metaphorically, others take it quite literally. So it has all the hallmarks of a religion, but it is a religion that has a twist. It may be a twist that is consistent with other religions that are developing today in the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st. Fine. In, in your book, you mentioned that the neo-paganism movement in America started to flourish in the 1960s and 70s. Mm. What were the influences that led to it then? Oh, there were a lot of influences. Of course, we think back to the 1960s and 70s and we think of social movements. Um, and there were a series of them that were very important for helping this movement take place and develop and become popular. One very important one is the women's movement because among women, or at least some women within the women's movement, they wanted a goddess image. And that image they felt was important for their own sense of well-being and for their own liberation. And of course, within paganism, within witchcraft, there's a strong emphasis on the goddess. In fact, the goddess is often seen as more important than the god. So that was one very important movement. There was also the environmental movement, which continues, of course, to be very important. And this was a religion in which nature was seen as divine. And so taking care of nature was taking care of the goddess or taking care of the goddess's body. It was a religious, if not duty, it was a religious calling. Uh, so this was a religion that spoke to some people's mm -hmm. environmental concerns. There was a growth of anti-authoritarianism, as I'm sure you remember, and that we should question the old buttons that, that were regularly worn on students' backpacks, question authority. And um, well, this is a religion that makes each person the authority on their relationship with the divine and it questions authority and it questions the authority in some ways of science because there is a practice of magic although for some magic is seen as the new science or part of science or part of quantum mechanics nonetheless there is something that sort of questions the traditional break of magic and science although i must add that many of the people who go into this are most of them are very well educated, and many of them are in the sciences. In terms of occupations, mm -hmm. uh, the most popular occupation after student in our survey was people who worked in computers, computer analysts, computer programmers, uh, people who are knowledgeable about maths and sciences. Uh, Helen, we were just starting to talk about magic before we had to leave for the break, so my next question will be no magic at all. How do, <laughs> how do neo-pagans define magic and how do they use it? Magic is very important for neo-pagans and the most common definition is changing reality to will or bending it to will. And they use magic in a number of different ways. And some of it is very classic magic in which they try to do magic or magical rituals to get something. For example, a parking space or 
to find a new house or an apartment or to get a job or to bring lovers to them. There's a strong ethic. I told you about the threefold mm -hmm. law. So there's strong ethic. You shouldn't bend anybody else's will. So it's considered wrong to try and get a particular person to love you, but it's legitimate to make yourself seem more lovable and to draw people to you who you might meet the right person. And of course, that's a popular ritual. So there's that whole series of rituals which fall under very classic magical activities. There are other rituals which are really rituals of the self, an attempt to change the self. And that could be seen as psychological, and many of the witches say they do indeed work psychologically. Uh, rituals, for example, to stop smoking. So that one ritual which was described to me to stop smoking is at one of these uh, rituals that I mentioned, the Sabbaths or a personal ritual, one would uh, put together a small bag of things, like a newspaper article about the hazards of smoking, a crumpled cigarette, some empowered stones, semi-precious stones, and put it in a bag and wear it around your neck and next to your heart. And then as you're trying to quit smoking, each time you want a cigarette, you hold on to your talisman and you get strength from it to not grab for that cigarette. Well, that's, you know, less a magic and more a psychological mm -hmm. crutch, one could say, or a psychological method mm -hmm. to try and break an addiction. And so magic could be seen working that way. Magic also puts them in contact with the divine. And so I would say that magic for most of them, the most important aspect is not only changing the world or changing the self, although that's there, but it's to become in some sense one with the goddess or the gods or the divine or the universal, whatever term that person uses. And it puts them into a different place in which they feel themselves to be in connection with something greater than themselves. And that is a very typical religious experience. So magic for them is part of a religious experience. Mm -hmm. How about the uh, neo-pagan view of death in the afterlife? Uh, most neo-pagans believe in reincarnation. And in mm -hmm. fact, we found in our book that 75% believe in reincarnation. That's a large percentage. It's much larger than in the general American mm -hmm. population, which I believe is around 23%. So it's three times higher. And of course, there's no universal for pagans, particularly there's no one setting up dogma, so there's no one to say right. this is the correct way to think. Right. But there tends to be a lot of consistency. And the consistency is in part because they read the same books, they go to the same internet sites. And so even if there's no dog, direct dogma, there does become an undercurrent of common belief and knowledge. And for many of them, they believe that after you die, you go to a place called Summerland, and there you have a chance to review your life and meet up with the spirits of others who had been important to you in that life and to sort of work out all those conflicts that you had and to sort of review what you did and to sort of in a calm place think about it and say, hmm, I really flubbed that one or I really hurt that person and that probably wasn't a good thing to do and um, I, now I see I did that wrong and that right and 
really that person was more important to me than I ever mm -hmm. gave him or her credit for. And then you get to come back to another life, but you get to start all over again. And it, it's less the Hindu notion that wh what you did in your last life right. will reflect. You just have another life, often something that you needed to, it's seen that the new life will be something you needed to learn. Um, and based on your last life. So it's less punishment than a sense that these are ways for you to to learn something that you need for your greater development. So as you go through each lifetime, you should be in some way growing and improving. It's a very modern notion mm -hmm. of human beings improving along the road. Progress, human, personal progress. Yes. Well, I guess on a, on a less spiritual level now, I noticed I was intrigued because uh, there evidently uh, is a high degree of a high correlation between pagans in involvement in the political process. Oh yes, well yes. In fact, that was a very surprising finding. Uh, we were very surprised. We did ask them about political uh, participation, and in my first book, I had thought, um, no, they weren't politically active. That there was a politics of lifestyle. You know, they're choosing to recycle mm -hmm. and other things. And Margot Adler, who had written a book and um, is a well-known pagan. Um, had said, no, they're not politically active. And then we did this study and we found compared to the average American, they're quite politically active. And I think that it's because we had, a, it's a religious movement, it's not a political movement. So they're not active next mm -hmm. to people who are members of Greenpeace or mm -hmm. the Republican Party possibly, but they are quite active next to the general American population, and that's clearly the group they should be compared to. And what we found is almost all of them vote. They, they're registered to vote. They voted particularly most strongly in national elections, but even in local and state elections, they vote. They write letters. They participate in demonstrations. Um, they participate in grassroots at a much higher rate than the general American population. So these are indeed politically active people. I guess we need to wind up pretty soon, but I did want to ask ask you, uh, do you feel or do you get a sense that the neo-pagan movement is growing? And oh yes, it's very clearly growing, particularly witches are the largest group and they seem to be growing the most. And the places that they're growing the most are among young people. So that there's a real interest now among the young in witchcraft. And do you think the attraction there is the same type of attraction that appealed to younger people or people in general in the 1960s and 70s? No, I think it's different. In fact, I just started doing research on this, and so that this is my next research topic, and it's different. They come to the religion because of the magic, and they come to it in part because they've seen it on TV, they've read Harry Potter, They've. Um, it seems exotic and exciting. And of course, as with all religions, more people come to it than stay. Most of them read a book or two and say, they try doing magic and they find out they can't be Hermione or Harry, and so they they leave. They're not flying through the air. and But those who stay, stay for the spirituality, for the connection to nature, and for the rit rituals of self-transformation. Well, this is very fascinating, Helen. We have lots more questions. Unfortunately, we won't be able to get to them today, but I'll ask everybody in the community who's interested in finding out about this intriguing and growing movement to come in and check out Helen's book, Voices from the Pagan Senses. 
Helen Berger from Westchester University, thank you for joining us today on Book Chat. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great deal of fun. It's been my pleasure. I'm Carl Hellicker, and we'll see you again.